Welcome to our sermon podcast for wanderers, seekers, and thinkers, for deconstructing and reconstructing. This is a feed of Open Door Church, a faith community focused on God's love and grace, a progressive church built around action, community, and people. We've got a guest speaker with us this week, so enjoy a fresh perspective and check back often as we're posting new content every week. We have with us today Edelette McVicker, founder and editor-in-chief at She Loves Magazine. Born and raised in South Africa but living now in Vancouver, she comes to us today with a fierce passion for justice and equality and Jesus. I'm excited to have her closing out our series on exile, and you can find out more about her and see some of her work at shelovesmagazine.com. Please welcome Edelette. Thanks, Rodney. It's really wonderful to be here. I feel deeply honored to be here. I'm grateful to stand on the land of the Ketsi, the Stolo, the Saanich, and the Kwantlen people. And I want to honor and acknowledge that. So for the past week, I've been driving kids to and from soccer, picking up kids from volleyball, driving my son to hockey. I brought one daughter with me today. The other one is on the soccer field. My son is with her. They would have loved to be here, but of course, the game was at the same time, and they're playing in Abbotsford, so it was like big, long haul over there, but we uh, this is life, right? This is the goodness and the fullness of life. And I was driving, and I was listening to Bradley and his, his sermons from the past several weeks about exile. And it was this wonderful experience and invitation into the story. And I really appreciated his perspective and, and the big questions that he was asking. I'm like, whoa, big questions. And yet, those are the very questions I have been wrestling with for much of my life. And you'll hear a little bit of that today. Big questions like, what do we do when it all comes crumbling down? What do we do when this belief or world or paradigms or realities or church or things that we had held on to or uh, we had centered our lives around no longer can center us when they come crumbling down? What do we do when it feels like mess or wilderness or exile? Um, I was recently reading Pastor, a memoir by Eugene Peterson, uh, who wrote the message, who translated and wrote the message, and uh, just his story of building church over the years. What does it mean to be a called-out community of God? And there was a time when they were they had been meeting in a basement in their house, and it was time for them to move into a building and draw plans for a building for their church community. And people had this vision of what church would be like. And when they brought the plans, it didn't look like this colonial building with large pillars or a steeple that pointed to the sky. It looked different than what they had anticipated. And they said, it didn't look like church. And Eugene Peterson was meeting weekly, um, maybe it was monthly, with some pastors in his community, as well as a rabbi from the local synagogue. And they had become friends, and it was a beautiful community, and they were speaking into, into, into each other's lives. And he was sharing the story of that his people didn't think that these plans, or that they didn't look like church. 
And so this rabbi said to him, I need to tell you a story. We all need the story of the Shekinah glory. It's an old rabbinic story. And you don't find it in the Bible, but it is a story that is passed on in the Hebrew consciousness, in the consciousness of the Jewish people. And Shekinah, you might have heard the word, is a Hebrew word that refers to a collective vision that brings together dispersed fragments of divinity. It is usually understood as a light disseminating presence, bringing an awareness of God to a time and a place where God is not expected to be. A place. And this rabbi was telling him it's not a public spectacle, but more like a selective showing at God's discretion to encourage or affirm to reveal the reality of something that we do not yet have eyes to see. And the story of this Shekinah glory is set in Jerusalem at a time when the Jews were returning from their Babylonian exile. Babylon had destroyed Jerusalem, and Bradley had given us so much of that history, and it was so good to stand in that story and to, and to ask those questions. What does it mean to love outside of the place that had centered us. Babylon had destroyed Jerusalem and its magnificent temple, the temple that was built by Solomon. And meanwhile, the Persian king Cyrus had conquered Babylon and gave the Jews permission to return to their homeland. He also made provision for them to rebuild the temple. When they got to the temple, they took one look at the restored temple, and they wept at what they saw. They had such high hopes. We get to go home. We get to go and worship at the place where we believe God is. And then they saw what to them looked like a paper shack. They had these high hopes for this temple that had been centering them for 500 years this glorious, magnificent temple. And what they saw instead was like a paper shack. And when they saw that, this squalid replacement, it broke their hearts. And they began weeping. And as they wept, a dazzling, light resplendent presence descended. The Shekinah, God's personal presence, filled that humble, modest, makeshift, sorry excuse for a temple with glory. And what stands out for me is that as they were weeping for what was such a loss of their hope, it was such a different picture of what they had expected. Things had not turned out how they thought it would. And they were weeping over that. And God came into those tears and said, I am here. I am present. Even when it doesn't look like what you had expected. Even if it doesn't look like the glory you had longed for. 
So my question is, what centers your life? That temple, that 500 years of majesty and glory centered the Jewish people around this temple, and that's just where their faith was so centered around that. But what centers us? What understanding in your life and in your faith do you center your everydayness around? And then, what happens when that doesn't live up to your expectations or your hopes? What if it gets shaken or destroyed? What if it crumbles? And that is where my story kind of enters in. Let me tell you about what used to center my life. I've lived in Canada for about 19 years. In fact, I arrived on November 10, 1999. So 19 years and a few days, 15 days. And so I've lived here on this continent in this land. I came via Taiwan, where I lived and worked as a journalist. But truly, I was born and raised in South Africa. Bradley introduced me as Idalette McVicker. My birth certificate says, Ida Gertreide van Papendorp. I am the daughter of Ida Gertreide Riedlingeis, who is the daughter of Ida Gertreide Visser, and who is the daughter of Ida Gertreide Visser as well. Four generations of women with his name and three generations of women in my family who were all born and raised and lived in South Africa, where I was born and raised. As I was listening to Bradley this, this week, I was also listening to Father Gregory Boyle, the founder of Homeboy Industries. I know if you're familiar with him, he works with gang members and uh, ex-drug ex-drug addicts, people who've come out of prison, and uh, he's one moment you're laughing, and the other moment you're crying. And his latest book is called Barking to the Choir. But he says that we have to do the following. We have to find our story, know our story, remember our story, tell our story, and always know that at the end of our story, we are its hero. But for the past probably 30 years, I could not see myself as the hero in my story. I'm just going to be very honest. I could not see myself as a hero in a larger story either. So as you heard from my names, maybe sounded a little Dutch. Uh, the Dutch went to South Africa, settled, colonized South Africa, and I come from that heritage. Um, a group of people were formed. It's called the Afrikaner people. We spoke Afrikaans, which is similar to Dutch. Um, <clears throat> but it is a blend of different languages, Portuguese, Malay, Tosa, uh, local languages, um, indigenous languages. And so it's this, it's this blend, and it's called, um, it's called Afrikaans. And so I grew up in a larger context as well in this country of South Africa, during a system that was called apartheid. And you might have heard of it in history or in the news. And apartheid literally means separateness, to be separated from each other. And it was rooted in a belief that white people were superior to people of color. And it was rooted in a belief that God had somehow assigned white people to be the redeemers, 
Imagine this. On the southernmost tip of Africa, to be some saviors of people of color. Afrikaners were in minority. Um, 1985 census says there was about 2.6 million white Afrikaans-speaking Afrikaners in South Africa. Uh, 2011 said about 2.7. There's about 4.6, let me just, uh, 4.6 million white people in South Africa. And in a total of about 56 million people in the whole of the country. So that gets you an idea where I was born into and what story I was born into. So my people, in 1948, um, only white people could vote. My people were elected into government. And it was called the National Party at the time. And they had won on this ticket that they called apartheid. They believed that it would be good to separate people based on the color of our skin. We would be separated into neighborhoods, live in different communities, uh, go to different churches, be educated in different systems. Um, and to be honest with you, we would walk through different doors at the post office. I wonder if there's a system here that sounds familiar. I've heard that um, the leaders in South Africa came to Canada to study the reserve system before they created the system of apartheid in, in South Africa. So I lived in an all-white neighborhood. I went to an all-white school. And every Sunday, I went to an all-white church. And at the time, to be an Afrikaner meant to be a person of faith. It meant to go to the Dutch Reformed Church every Sunday. And there was a, a church right in our community, in our neighborhood, tall with a, with a tall steeple, white building, and the clock with a bell reminded us every Sunday to come to church, and every Sunday evening, and Wednesday nights for prayer meetings. Mostly ignored that one, right? But on Sunday morning, you would find every person in the community sitting in that church. And it was frowned upon if you didn't attend because it became part of our culture. It was part of our culture to be a person of faith. But you can imagine that this church who had created also the larger church, who created this theology of separateness, of apartheid, that there was some warped understanding of what it meant to be human, right? But this is what I was born into. This is what I was growing up to. This is what I had centered my life around, being an Afrikaner woman living according to certain expectations. And then when I was about 16, I read a book. At that time, they started unbanning some of the books in South Africa before everything was just pro-apartheid, um, pro everything that the government had said. Um, they started unbanning some of the books, so dissenting voices, other voices started to be heard. And there was this book in the library that I picked up, and it was in that section where, like, the dangerous book. And I was like, yeah, I want to read that one. And it was called A Dry White Season. It was a fictional, fictional story. But what it had done is it created an imagination in me for a different reality. Until that moment, I couldn't, I hadn't understood any other, I didn't have language or even an imagination for a different reality. So I had only had this small world. But when I read that book, 
and it opened me up to some of the other realities of oppression and pain and suffering and violence and lies. My world came crumbling down. And it really was on all three, all three areas, my personal, my home life, my family, my spiritual life, God, church, God, or what we believe that God had set up the system of hierarchy, that some people were a little better than others, right? And also the political context, right? So all three of those, all of that was connected. And all of that came crumbling down. I didn't know what to do. I didn't have language for this. I didn't, I didn't know what to do when I couldn't center my life anymore around this church, around this God, around what, it, what I thought was, I, I felt I had I'd grown up and taught to be proud of being an Afrikaner woman. All of a sudden, I did not feel that. So I went to university, I drank a lot of red wine, smoked a lot of cigarettes, um, and then moved to another university, kind of did, did the, the part where um, I moved out of my Afrikaner community. This university was an English university, and so I really wanted to leave all of that language, culture, because all of it was intertwined, and God behind. And I, went, I thought, maybe there's some answers in the English community. But that didn't work out either. An invitation moved, um, came up, um, or a door opened up for me to go to Taiwan and to teach English there, and I'm like, sure, let's do that. And so I did that. Now I'd even, I'd walked even further away from everything, right? Now I'd even left the land that I'd grown up and loved. But so far away from family and friends and culture and language and even moral values, I experienced a very deep, deep loneliness. It was such a shattering, right? Everything had shattered. And maybe some of you are familiar with what that feels like, right? And there was one night when I was in a crisis situation and I drove my little purple scooter through the streets of Taipei among 2.6 million people and there was nobody I could call. I had nobody that I could say, I need help. Can you come help me? I found my way through that situation, but I knew I needed a different vision. I needed a different imagination. The psalmist and Boney M sang, by the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down, yeah, yeah, we wept when we remembered Zion, this experience of exile by the skyscrapers and the traffic and the noise and the bustle and the good food and the, and the noodles of Taipei. There I sat down and I wept but I didn't want to return to the South Africa or the world I've come from. I needed another vision for a different world, a larger world. I longed for a larger God. And then I met a feisty Canadian businesswoman in a power suit who invited me to a woman's power breakfast. And around that table, we sat and we prayed and we talked about Jesus. And this Jesus looked so different on these women. So different. 
And I caught a glimpse of a different God, a God of freedom and a God of including all of God's people and a God who loved all the nations of the world and every skin color and every person. And far from away from home, I was so hungry for God. And I learned that this is exile or this experience of exile can teach us about our hungers and what we're truly longing for. I could see God and taste God in flaky croissants and scrambled eggs with borson on a Sunday afternoon in Dorothy's house. I could feel God in the warmth of community with other believers. And I began to experience God again through God's word and through prayer and church and community. And it was the nations who came together a Taipei International Church, and I was hungry for every last morsel of God. So the story unfolded in those three areas, personally, spiritually, and politically, and they were all connected. I couldn't have an awakening only in the one area. It had to happen over all three. And maybe you have another stream where you have experienced this loneliness or this desolation. My identity and my relationship were shaped in a context that was all white. All my friends were white, all my teachers were white. I had no relationships or friendships with any people of color. And I sometimes say it like this. It is like if you've been eating white bread, and white bread only, for 18 years of your life you become emaciated and you become hungry for the fullness and the glorious revelation of God in all of humanity. And I was so hungry. So, but we have to figure our way out, out of, our forward, out of the rubble. Why do we find ourselves on the outside of the center of power? And so for a long time, I found comfort and consolation in the story of exile. As I was reading my Bible, I started identifying with the story of exile, maybe on a subconscious level. Two years ago, I got to sit um, and spend a week on Robben Island, which is an island just, just you, you see Table Mountain, Cape Town, it's just, just a few kilometers off of Cape Town. It is an island where Nelson Mandela was literally in prison uh, for many, many years. There was other political prisoners there as well. And here people were literally taken away. People of power, people were created to center the story. They were taken away so that they wouldn't influence others. We had heard that that was exactly the point of exile, is you take the most powerful people, the most powerful leaders, the thought leaders, you take them away, you remove them from society so that they don't get to cause an uprising. So Nelson Mandela was removed and he spent time on, on Robben Island and I got to go. I got to be there for a week. And one morning we were sitting and my friend decided to, to go to um, Jeremiah 29. And, um, <clears throat> and it is a letter to the exiles. And I was sitting there with people from around the world, but mostly, mostly African. 
and there was this letter to the exiles. And um, Jeremiah wrote a letter from Jerusalem to the elders, the priests, the prophets, and all the people who had been exiled to Babylon by King Nebuchadnezzar. And I'm just going to skip a little bit. And this is what he says. This is what the Lord of heaven's armies, the God of Israel, says to all the captives he has exiled to Babylon from Jerusalem. Build homes and plan to stay. Plant gardens and eat the food they produce. Marry and have children. Then find spouses for them so that you may have many grandchildren. Multiply. Do not dwindle away. And work for the peace and prosperity of the city where I sent you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, for its welfare will determine your welfare. And it goes on in verse 10, and it says, this is what the Lord says, you will be in Babylon for 70 years, but then I will come and do for you all the good things I have promised, and I will bring you home again. And there's that verse we love so much, and we like to quote at, you know, graduations and all that stuff. For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. They are plans for good and not for disaster, to give you a future and a hope. In those days when you pray, I will listen. If you look for me wholeheartedly, you will find me. I will be found by you, says the Lord. I will end your captivity and restore your fortunes. I will gather you out of the nations where I sent you, and I will bring you home again to your own land. Sitting on Robben Island, inside the prison, the former, the former prison, Afrikaner woman who lives in Canada, and tears were streaming down my face because I recognized that subconsciously I had really identified with the story of exile. And I didn't know what to do with it. And so basically for the past two it was January 2016 for the past two, almost three years. I've been work, walking with that story of, oh, I am not a political, I'm not, I'm not a, I'm not in political exile, but I sort of just internalized, I'm just very transparent because it was really wrong theology here. Um, but I had internalized that if you mess up, then there will be consequences. And my Afrikaner people had messed up, so there were consequences for me. And I feel like there's consequences for me and my people. And that this is how God has taken me out of the land. The land, you know, some, you know, the land will spit you out. There's some other language around there. And I, I identified with that. I turned 46 in October. And somewhere along this journey of finding my story, knowing my story, remembering my story, and telling my story, I discovered that apartheid, this system of separateness and injustice, had lasted for 46 years. And I don't know if it is because of the number, but something inside me clicked that this is, that this is, this is done. That I don't have to carry the weight. That this is not the God of the New Testament. On top of that, here I am, a privileged white woman living in one of the most beautiful, incredible nations in the world. I'm cisgendered. I have so much privilege. I chose to live here. I chose to marry my husband. 
That is not true exile. True exile is when we're taken from a place of power and positioned outside of the center of power, when people are forcibly removed and held. I am an immigrant, yes. But this is not a true story of exile. I was identifying with that. But I also know that the story of exile gives us lots. It gives us an imagination for those places of loss. I was deeply mourning the loss of my land and my country. I was naive in 1999 when I moved to Canada. I said yes to Scott. Within three months, we got married. I was deeply naive. And I didn't realize all the things that would have come with that. Moving from Taiwan to Canada, making a new life here, and probably never returning to South Africa. I didn't count the cost. It just seemed like the next thing, the next good thing. But this was my choice. This was my choice. And for those who are truly in exile, it is not a choice. The centers of power dismiss, diminish, demean, send away. Silence. And yet, as people of God, I believe that we can learn from this place of exile. There was one day I got to sit in another political prisoner's space on Robben Island, and his name is Robert Sibukwe. And he was so powerful in the eyes of the apartheid government that they silenced him for six years. They said, you are not allowed to speak. They put him, they put him in his, his own little house on this island. Nelson Mandela got to be with some of the other prisoners. They got to at least have some community. But Robert Subukwe was so dangerous in the eyes of the apartheid government that he was even separated from community in prison. Talk about exile. And yet there on a wall, they had some of the writings of Robert Subukwe. And this is what he wrote. He says, I believe it's God's will that I should come here to realize how much love there is in the world. <laughs> he is a much bigger person than I am. Than I am. And people who have tasted and experienced this kind of exile have so much to teach us about this place of nothingness, and how much love there is meant to be in the world. As I look at the story of exile and I see the story of restoration right alongside there, for me it's not about returning to the land as much as it has been about returning my heart to God. It is also this. If I haven't spent time in the margins, then how can I love those in the margins? If I haven't felt the weight of loneliness and displacement, how can I show love and mercy and compassion to the lonely and displaced? If I haven't felt lost and out of place and out of sorts, how can I journey with those who do feel lost and out of sorts and out of place? And if I hadn't seen God in the places I've least expected God to be, then how can I have an imagination large enough to hold the God of the universe? And if I haven't experienced God with me in the darkest of my hours, then how can I know that God is truly with us?
I want to tell another one last story. In the South African winters, it would be summer here, my family often would drive, would take a long trip to my mother's hometown. And this hometown was about eight, nine hours away from where we lived. And we had to cross this area that was a semi-desert semi called the Karoo. And as I was thinking about the Karoo, it's kind of like the distances of Saskatchewan combined with the landscape of Arizona. So when you bring those kind of two together, <clears throat> then you drive for about six of the eight hours through this semi-desert landscape in South Africa. And as a little kid, we had no devices, no movies in the car. There was radio in some places. We did listen to Boney M <laughs> later on when there was cassettes in the car. But as a young girl, all I could do was either sleep or look out the window. And what I didn't realize at the time is that that landscape not only was around me, but it shaped my soul. This dry and dreary landscape, this landscape that I had said exasperated as a young girl, this net bosses, 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 which means just bushes, 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 like little bushes. But that landscape shaped the landscape of my soul. And now when I find myself in a story where I'm like, oh dear, what happened with the church that I thought was the center of the story? Kind of feels like bushes, bushes, bushes right now. <laughs> feels pretty dry and dreary some days. What happens when my story didn't quite turn out the way I thought it would? What happens when the temple doesn't look as magnificent as I thought it would? What happens when my dreams for my own life or my family or my children or my career, if those things don't quite measure up to the hopes and the desires and the expectations I had and held, and it just kind of feels like bushes, 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 right? What do I do with that? And I feel like that landscape also teaches us about exile and resurrection. Because what happens when it rains in the Karoo is that the whole landscape bursts forth with life. The sheep frolic and the windmills dance and the streams bubble up and the flowers bloom. And this landscape that once was dry and dreary becomes alive. And it looks like resurrection and restoration. And 46 years of apartheid felt like bushes, 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 and dry and dreary land. But I also know it looked like the euphoria of 56 million, well, not quite 56 million people, but every voting person in 1994 being able to vote in the first free and democratic election. It comes. And so this landscape keeps teaching me to see the glory of God in the least expected places and to weep like the Israelites upon their return, coming face to face with the diminished splendor of the temple and coming face to face with the loss, with the what will never be again. 
Have you found yourself in that place? So the people of exile, to be people of exile, is to be people who live with what will never be again, to live with that loss. To be people of exile is to be people who live with loss of our dreams, our hopes, our expectations. To be people of exile is to be people who cannot live from the ego alone, but to have to find our true selves. To be people of exile is to know loneliness and despair. To be people of exile is to know what it feels like to be out of sorts and out of place. To be people of exile is to know what it feels like not to be loved for all the exterior stuff, the power, the position, the wealth. To be people of exile is to expand and become large on the inside. To be people of exile is to be so hungry for God. To be people of exile is to long for restoration. To be people of exile is to know how much pain there is in the world, but ultimately also how much love there is. And to be people of exile is to become people who begin to see this moment now, even in the dry and dreary land, as an invitation to see the glory. To be people of exile is to be people who begin to live out now what the world is to become, ultimately. When your story doesn't look like the story you had always imagined, when you weep for what can never be, may the God of the Shekinah presence visit you in your tears and remind us God has been here all along. God is present with us. Emmanuel, here now. Even our crumbled hopes and expectations. Emmanuel, especially in our crumbled hopes and shame, our despair and our dashed expectations. May we have eyes to see. Thanks for listening to this sermon podcast from Open Door Church. Our intro and outro music was created by Lee Rosevere and is used under a Creative Commons by Attribution license. Have a great week. Ask the hard questions and explore God's love. Everyone is always welcome to join the journey with us at Open Door. Learn more at opendoorfamily.ca. That's opendoorfamily.ca.